Good morning, everyone. Jake is awake. Uh, I love that. Uh, um, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, uh, teaching pastor here for uh, Riverwood. And uh, before I begin our sermon, um, I want to give the uh, Riverwood family an update. Uh, many of you know that we have been supporting Patrick Ray and his goal of planting a church up in the North Minneapolis area. Uh, we've been supporting him for the, uh, three years now. Uh, they've been, he and his wife Shelby uh, and their uh, little girl have been living in uh, North for quite a while, building relationships, just doing what they can to, to get people to trust them. And in the meantime, they've been building a core team. Uh, many of you uh, get their prayer emails. Uh, some of you have got, traveled up and helped them with a, a couple of different things. Uh, a few of us went up when they had their very first preview service, uh, Christmas of 2019. Uh, some of you uh, uh, were praying for them as they had their uh, official like uh, preview launch uh, at Easter of this year, but today is their actual official launch Sunday. Today is the day when they're basically opening the doors and welcoming the entire community to be a part. So it feels very appropriate since we've been on this journey with Patrick for three years for us to stop and pray for him. Well, in typical church planner fashion, Patrick sent an email this week asking for people to pray for them in their launch Sunday. However, his prayer email was a little different than the one I would have sent seven and a half years ago before Riverwood launched. So I want to read a, a good portion of this to you so that it helps you understand why I pray the way I do as we pray for him in a minute. So here is how Patrick's prayer email starts. A 12-year-old boy was shot and killed on Wednesday. Yesterday, someone fired into a barber shop, killing one and injuring two. We have now lost six-year-old Anaya, nine-year-old Trinity, and 12-year-old London, all in one summer. And that doesn't count the 10-year-old boy who was critically injured by a bullet wound. And that doesn't include the children who are so afraid that they can't sleep at night. My God, my God, we are living in a cemetery. But we've got too much at stake to commute to other neighborhoods for church. We have such a great opportunity to speak the good news of resurrection into this cemetery. I'm dreaming of a day where balloons mean birthday parties again and not memorials. I'm dreaming of a day where more mothers and fathers gather their children around for family devotionals rather than for funerals. But I'm not dreaming these dreams alone. I've got a growing church family that's dreaming these dreams with me. I've got a God who is known for bringing dead bones back to life. Our official launch is on Sunday. I am hoping people will come to church and that when they come, our people, meaning our core team, will welcome them warmly. I get to preach a sermon titled, God's Plan for North. And the world. This short sermon will seek to explain Ephesians 1 7 through 10, where we see that God is doing two big things in Christ. Number one, forgiving sins, and number two, reconciling all things in heaven and on earth. My God has shown me through His Holy Word that all who come to Christ have guaranteed forgiveness, and He has shown me that someday all the sad things will come untrue. J.R.R. Tolkien. And then there will be no more babies killed. And then there will be no more domestic abuse. And then there will be no more financial exploitation. 
But until that day comes, the local church is called to be ambassadors of reconciliation that point to the world to come. So please pray that more neighbors would come to know Christ and that more neighbors would join us in proclaiming this gospel, promoting reconciliation among the families of the north side. So Heavenly Father, we pray for Patrick and the entire core team of Northside Neighborhood Church that today on their launch Sunday, as today they have their first official worship gathering for the public, that as they meet right now as we do, we pray, Father, for your spirit to move powerfully, for you to be at work, that you would draw the people who need to be a part And I pray that that today, uh, Patrick and and Shelby and their entire core team would not rejoice in just numbers and and the number of people who show up. Or that they would not feel discouraged in a, a lack of people who show up. But that instead they would rejoice in knowing that you, Jesus, died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. And you have called them to go into this neighborhood to bring this story of reconciliation to a world that desperately needs it. But God, we pray for the safety of the Ray family their core team, of their neighborhood. We pray that many of these uh, young men and women that are causing this violence would find Christ, that their lives would be radically changed. Would you use Northside Neighborhood Church to be a part of that? Would you let them see the fruit of their labors? Heavenly Father, I can only imagine how angry all of this makes your enemy. But God, we believe that you are all-powerful that you are the God of the universe. So we pray that you would stop Satan in his tracks, you would thwart his efforts, and that your story of reconciliation, the story of the gospel, would crash into north, that it would change the lives, and no more little kids would be killed, no more kids would have to go to bed afraid, that the, the, the neighborhood would radically change, simply because you called a group of people into that neighborhood to love those people just like Christ loved us and to share the good news of Jesus. So Father, we pray that today is a wonderful day, a special day for Northside Neighborhood Church. But we pray that you would give them years of fruitful ministry. And God, I just want to say thank you for bringing Patrick across our path, that we have gotten to know him, that he has gotten to preach to us, that he has been such an encouragement to us, just as he says we've been an encouragement to him. Thank you, God, for this friendship, for this partnership. And Lord, would you, the things that you were doing there, would that trickle to Riverwood right here in Waverly, Iowa? That the, the, the changes that are happening there, we would see the same types of changes happening here. So that's why, God, we now turn to the scriptures. We now turn to, to today's sermon. And we ask, Father, for you to teach us that, that whatever biases we're bringing in, that whatever uh, rough week we had, whatever future plans we may be thinking about right now, that right now we would bring all of that to you. We'd lay all of it before you, and we'd ask you, God, to teach us, to show us what you are calling us to do. Because, God, I believe that just as you love the people in north, you love us as well. So we pray for our morning as, as, as much as we pray for Northside Neighborhood Church in North Minneapolis. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship. To the breaking of bread. And the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done. Through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Any of you ever met uh, a family where the dad or maybe the mom, but for some reason it usually seems to be the dads, that will look at their kid and say, remember, you are a, and then they say their last name. For instance, if their last name was Canfield, uh, the high school student's getting ready to head out on a Friday night and the dad just simply looks at him and says, hey, remember, you're a Canfield. Or the little four-year-old is, is crying over something, you know, like big brother took his toy and they're mad. And mom comes over and says, hey, hey, it's okay. You're fine. You're strong. You're a Canfield. A- anyone know a family like this? Or maybe you're part of a family like this? Okay, a, a few hands. I, I thought of, I, I heard of this idea when I, when I was fairly young, maybe middle school. And I thought that would be so cool. I, I, I thought I'd get married, have kids, and, and then I'd look at my kids and give them that five-second pep talk. So then I finally had children. Brought my child before me, and I got ready to say it. And as I got ready to say it, I realized suddenly this does not work. Because I knew my child would look at me and either start laughing or roll their eyes. Because if I said, you are a bird, <laughs> they'd look at me and go, Daddy, I'm not a bird. I'm a person like my whole dreams were crushed. So I guess dads with normal last names get to pull this out and use this. But my question is why, why do they give the little mini Ted talk to their child? You know, the five second, you are a Johnson or a Jones or a Smith or whatever, because there is an implicit understanding that if you bear that name, that there are certain expectations for the way you're going to live. Maybe, you know, like kids going through a hard time and you say, hey, remember, you're a smith, which means we persevere. Or, you know, like the kids sitting there hemming and hawing, you know, like trying to find out what's going on and they're not quite telling the truth. Say, remember, you're a Jones. We tell the truth. You could use it in all sorts of ways. Like, you know, your siblings are fighting. Hey, remember, you guys are browns. You are kind. There's this idea that if you bear this name, you're going to be a certain type of person. When a person puts their faith in Jesus, the scriptures teach that they move from being separated from God to now being adopted by God. Which means they now take on the name of God, the name of Christ. They join the family. So now because they bear this name, there are certain expectations for the way they're going to live. And we see this in Acts chapter 2. So if you brought a Bible, please open it up to Acts chapter 2. Start at verse 42, the section that I read. Um, As you turn to to Acts 
Acts 2, verse 42. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. Um, I Honestly, I forgot to put this scripture up on the screen. I apologize. I have a bunch of other scripture up on the screen, but I forgot this particular one. Um, but I, we will uh, uh, look at port, parts of it. But what I want to encourage you then to do is download a Bible to your phone. Uh, feel free to use a digital Bible. Uh, if you really, really don't have a Bible and you just don't have a phone and you want a paper copy, we have some out on our resource table. And we'd love to just give that to you as a gift. And you can use that uh, any and every Sunday as well as Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. But as you're turning to Acts 2, uh, let's just do a quick recap. We've been doing a series called the church, uh, Defining Church. Who is the church? What is the church? What we saw through Acts uh, 2 three weeks ago is that the church is not a building. It is the people. However, it's not just any collection of people. I mean, you can have a group of people get together and watch a sport. That's not a church. What we saw through Acts 2 is it's the people who put their faith in Jesus. So it's the redeemed people of God. But then we noticed two weeks ago that those redeemed people of God didn't just get together, have a social club and play cards. That we saw that Jesus had given them a mission. They were something they were called to do. And actually what we saw was that the mission existed way before the church ever did. So it wasn't that God just gave a mission to his church. It's that God actually created a church to accomplish his mission. And then last week we saw that because Jesus is the one who started the church and he's the one who gave a mission to the church, he is therefore the head of the church. He is the true leader, not pastors like me, not an elder team or staff like our Sunday team. No, it is Jesus. So anything and everything done within the church is to be first and foremost for him, for his glory. But we can't end there. There's another key critical thing that we see in Acts 2 that we need to understand And that is this, that if you bear the name of Christ, if you claim to be a follower of him, there's a certain way you are to act, a certain way you are to live. You are to, the way we put it in our definition, is to live out the implications of the gospel. For instance, we see this in, uh, we we hear it in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to his uh, former like mentee, Timothy. In Acts chapter 16, you see Paul on one of his missionary journeys in a city known as Lystra. And he meets young Timothy there. Everyone was talking really highly of this Timothy guy. So Paul wants to meet him. He does. He's really impressed. Invites Timothy to come along with him. And Timothy begins to travel with Paul on his journeys, helping him plant churches. So these two had done ministry together for years. And after years of investing in Timothy... Paul, after spending three years in Ephesus, realizes, I need to continue on to plant churches. But Ephesus had become a very key critical city, key critical church. So he's not going to just leave it to anyone. So he leaves it to Timothy. Well, you can imagine that their friendship was so strong that by going separate ways, they, they begin to miss one another. And so that's why we see here in his first letter to Timothy saying, hey, I hope to come to you soon. I'd really love to see you. I'd love to hang out. There's some things that I really want to share with you. But just in case, just in case I'm delayed, I'm writing this letter to get something to you. And what is it that he wants Timothy to know? It's right there in verse 15. How one ought to behave in the household of God. 
And just in case Timothy isn't fully clear on what does Paul mean by the household of God, he says it's the church of the living God. When you join the church, when you put your faith in Jesus, you join the family of God. You join his household. And with that comes an expectation of how you ought to behave. This is not just, though, Paul writing to Timothy. This was a theme for Paul. He wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, that they are to walk in a manner worthy of God. In Colossians 2.6, he says that just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Then in last week, F, F, uh, we heard from Ephesians 4. He says in Ephesians 4.1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And the reason he says this over and over and over is because this is what we see in the church, including in Acts 2. So if your Bible is open there to Acts 2, look down specifically at verses 44, 45, and 46. We studied these verses three weeks ago when we saw that the church is the redeemed people of God. What we saw that week is that the redeemed people, they do at least three things. Based on these verses, we saw them giving to one another. You, you see there in uh, verse 45 that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to the proceeds to all who had need. All right, so they're, they're giving generously. We also see them serving. They didn't just give their money. We said that they're actively involved. They're distributing the proceeds to all. So they're actually serving with their time and their energy. And then as we looked at it overall, we started seeing that this is love. The reason the church is doing this is because this is what Christ had done for them. When we started this series, we saw that earlier in Acts chapter 2, that there had been this rushing sound of wind. And so all these Jewish people that had been in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, they heard it and they're like, what was that? So they all gather together and it gives an opportunity for Peter to stand up and preach a sermon. And it says in verse 41 of Acts 2 that 3,000 people believed. Overnight, the church went from a small country church to a mega church. 3,000 people believed and were baptized. And so the church needs to understand how are we called to live? And we see them beginning to live out this idea that just as Jesus gave his life for us, so we're going to give to others. Just as Jesus served us when he was on earth, we're going to serve one another. Just as Jesus displayed immense love for us by giving his life, we are going to love one another. If you put your faith in Jesus, it should change the way you think and change the way you behave. But now I have some bad news for you. The world around you knows this, even if you don't. Like your coworkers. Your fellow students at school. Like if they find out that you're a Christian, immediately in their head, they're thinking, oh, well, then you should do these sort of things. And so if they catch you lying, if they hear you share some gossip, if, if they sense you like looking at someone lustfully, if you're even just like 10 minutes late getting back from your lunch break, they're going to let you know about your hypocrisy. They might mock you for your faith. And if they don't do it to your face, they're probably going to do it behind your back. And then if you have the audacity to try to share your faith with them, why would, why would they want your Jesus? Because it doesn't really seem to have done that much for you. 
And after all, they're probably thinking in their head that there may actually be better than you. A lot of pressure, isn't it? Suddenly a sense that, oh my goodness, I've got to like do everything perfectly. But let me warn you, if you continue down that thought train, it's going to lead you to a very dangerous place. If you live with this idea that I have to do everything absolutely perfectly all the time, it's going to lead just to legalism. It will lead us to judging one another like, oh, you listen to that kind of music? You, you watched that movie? Oh my God, I, I thought you were a Christian. Like it, it leads you to some really bad places. It, it could lead you to a place where you actually fear God. You don't love him. You're, you're scared. You're afraid because, oh my goodness, I didn't do everything right. Or, or it just makes following Jesus a burden. Like, there's, there's no joy. Because, man, look at all the things I have to do. I, I hope you have heard over and over and over, if you're part of the Riverwood family, the message that God loves you. Right? There is grace. God does not look at you, see your sin, and go, ew, I, I can't love them. No, God sees your sin and he comes to you. You see it in Jesus. It's why Jesus left heaven to come to earth. It wasn't just to show us a better way. It was ultimately to go to die on a cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and then come into that better way. And so I don't want anyone sitting here going, oh, great, a message on how I have to be better. No, it's about Jesus. But at the same time, We cannot fool ourselves into just thinking, ah, it's fine. God gives me grace. It doesn't matter what I do. No, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then you are part of the household of God. And it should change the way you behave. So there there is a tension here. There's a pull by God and his Holy Spirit saying, you need to follow me. You need to live this way. But yet there's some other pull Towards sin. Why are we pulled to the dark side? I think it's because that's where we were born. The, The scriptures teach that for all have sinned and fall short of God's standard. So all of us are born into sin. So that's what we know. That's what we're comfortable with. That's what in a sense feels good. And try to go the other way. It just feels hard. Many years ago, I had the opportunity to hear a missionary uh, talking about his, his ministry in the Middle East. Uh, he and his wife had met, married, headed over to the Middle East, and uh, did ministry for a number of years, had a couple of kids. Kids grew up there. But then his missionary activity was discovered. It was a closed country, a Muslim country. And so he was arrested. He was, he was in, you know, uh, questioned. And he really feared that his life was going to be over or he'd spend the rest of it in prison. Because he was an American, they ended up releasing him, kicked him and his family out of the country. I mean, they literally had just hours. They ended up leaving a ton of stuff behind. And they were gone. And basically was told, if you ever come back, we will kill you. So suddenly he finds himself back in the United States wondering, God, why did you allow that to happen? What is going on? And what am I supposed to do? Because he really thought he was called to these people. Well, as they were in America trying to heal from some of the trauma of all of this, they end up finding an opportunity to go to a neighboring country, one that was not closed, that would allow them to come in. But there were a bunch of of refugees from the original country who'd come to this new country. But they needed someone to come and like do ministry among these refugees. 
So he got to go with his family back to the Middle East, a different country, but work with the same type of people. They already knew the language. They already knew their culture. And so they could immediately come in and start doing ministry among them. These refugees in another nation. So they hopped on a plane. They fly back to the Middle East. And the landscape was very similar in this new country to the previous one. Now, this missionary admitted that he did not find the uh, uh, landscape very attractive. He, he saw it and thought it was just kind of plain and boring and barren and brown. And he's like, I, I'm from the Midwest of, of America. I like cornfields and rolling hills and forests and going to Colorado and seeing mountains. I, I, I don't prefer this. However, his children who had been born in the Middle East, all of their formal, formative years being over there, they get in the taxi as they're driving from the airport to their apartment or hotel or whatever, and they look out the windows and they go, oh, look, it's beautiful. Because this was home. Many of us were born in our sin. It's natural. It's normal. And for some of us, it's, Beautiful. But God does not look at our sin and just see it as like boring, barren, and brown. This is not just like a difference of opinion. God knows that for us to live in this land means death. It is bad for us. And he loves us so much, he doesn't want us to be in the land of sin. So he has come through Christ to call us out, to bring us out into a lush land of life. Or to put it a different way, maybe a more biblical way. We are born with a sin nature, but through the gospel, God is removing that nature and bringing us into a place to become more like Christ. That is why God does not look at our sin and is repulsed by it. Instead, he comes to rescue us, to bring us so that he might begin to change our very nature so that we are no longer being as attracted to that sin. But over time, slowly, he is changing and transforming us. Instead, he's slow cooking us rather than microwaving us. And so, yes, there is this call to how we ought to live, but there is also patience. There is grace. There is growth. But it's what God desires for you. Because so often the things that we think, oh, this is nice, this is fun, this is great, are actually slowly eating us from the inside. And God loves you way too much to let you just stay there. He can't look at it and go, "Ah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Difference of opinion. No, he looks at it and says, I love you. I died for that sin. Let me bring you out. And as he brings us out, He gives us a new name. And by carrying that name, there is now a different expectation. My children gave me a uh, calendar many years ago. Uh, It was a bunch of cartoons. Uh, You're supposed to flip one every day, and it was aimed at pastors. So a bunch of really cheesy Christian cartoons. But I remember one of the cartoons was a picture of a pastor sitting at his desk praying. And the little caption underneath was supposedly his prayer. And he says, dear God, thank you so much for the sermon illustration. Now, would you please give me a biblical text to go with it? My problem this week was not trying to find a biblical text in order to preach from. My problem was which one do I use? We see it lived out in Acts chapter 2. 
But we also see it in almost all of the epistles. Just pick one of the epistles, one of the letters written by Paul or Peter or John. Just pick one of them. And I can, I can tell you, most of them, the first half is all about the gospel. Here's what the gospel is. Here's what Jesus did. It's all about him. And so therefore, the second half of the letter is, so therefore, here's how we should now live. Over and over and over, this happens in the scriptures. And so I found myself like, which one do I do? And, and then Jake and I talked and came up with an idea. Rather than pick just one, why not let you hear many? And, and so what we want to do today is rather than just take one passage and we try to like work our way through it, I've invited Sam and Grace to come up and read. They're going to read three different passages from the scriptures. We're not going to put the scripture up. We'll put the references up. So if you want to write them down and look at them later. But we just want you to listen to the scriptures. Realize that each of these comes in the latter half of, a, of one of the letters. And it is simply, so if you bear the name of Christ, here's how you are now called to live. Now, I will be honest. I hope this overwhelms you. But I, I do not want it to, to overwhelm you in a way that you walk out of here feeling burdened. Like, oh my goodness, there's no way I can do this. Instead, I hope you are overwhelmed realizing this is what God wants for you. Because if you begin to live this way, you slowly start finding freedom. You start finding joy. You begin to live like Jesus lived and loved like Jesus loved. So these words are actually to help launch you to go be that blessing we talk about in the world. So if you would, please listen to these three passages as Sam and Grace read them for us. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight, but repay no one evil for evil. But be give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never arrange, avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, 
not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. Put to death, before, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ in all, Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, so that indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, uh, greedy to practice in every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Let let not the sun go down on your anger, and 
Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God.